Hello everyone on the other side of the screen and also all those of you who are listening to us. Welcome to the Recursive Podcast and my name is Irina. I'm today's host and today with me there is a very special guest that most of you probably know, just as Rado from Product Hunt. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome here. Happy to have you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> when I was reading um, about your past, and uh, so far you've shared a lot about your personality, so it would be a challenging episode for me to take out something which is unknown <laughs> about you. But let's start maybe with your early days. I don't know when you learned programming, but you landed your first job as a programmer at the age of 15, if I'm not uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it happened a bit by accident. So my father was uh, is a software engineer. I mean, he still is, but we never talked about uh, coding back in the day. So when I was like 13, 14, uh, we, at the school, we had like learning courses. Like we started learning this programming language, Pascal. And start, stuff just got, kind of clicked to me and become fun. And from there on, it's the, uh, my life just started to spin around that. <laughs> Like, um, with we, Pascal. I know, Pascal just, <laughs> I mean, Pascal was just like, okay, I'm good at something. Finally, I'm good at something. Because before that, I was, so, I, I had decent math skills. I had like good chess skills, but nothing great. But with the programming, it was kind of easy for me in the beginning. And then we went to HTML course, and this was like 2000, 2001, which was very early on. And I hit my first roadblock. Uh, I had to just make like a simple web page with search. And this was hard, <laughs> really hard for me <laughs> back in that time. And because I learned that, uh, a friend of mine said, oh, you should apply for a job now. You are a programmer. And I, and I was very young and very naive and I applied for a job. They say no. And I call again two times and I and they find like, okay, just do that and let, let leave us alone. And I. And I was young and naive. I thought this was part of every interview process, and that's how I started working. <laughs> so because you didn't know about the interview process, you thought, I'm just going to keep on calling them till they get yeah, me on the Yeah, job. exactly. Like, they call me, yeah, that's cool. We're going to call you. And I know what this means now. But back in the day, I mean, I was like 15, 14, 15, socially awkward. And I just called them. And fortunately enough, I, the, the guy who answered the phone was not the guy who interviewed me, it was another guy who needed help. And I thought this was an interview. And I started helping him on his tasks. So it turns out I did half of, half of his tasks back that in a couple of weeks. So they just, okay, just you do them. So we reduce one person to you know. <laughs> I love the story. Okay. And, <clears throat> you know, I think many of, you know, uh, of the people listening to us who haven't started programming at that age and who didn't go to straight to software development at your age would think like, yeah, of course he's a good developer. I mean, I thought, uh, of course he's a, a good programmer. But to all those of maybe us <laughs> who didn't start their journey in, in IT so early and uh, as programmers so early, what would you say to them is the most important skill for a software developer or a programmer? Uh, so the most important skill in general, in my opinion, is to be reliable and to be curious. And every time you don't know something, you just ask. Like, especially in our industry, people love to explain. Like everybody who has technical knowledge, even if they're very grumpy, they like a lot of 
people like their jobs and I and they love talking about them and a lot of great engineers are also great mentors and that's how they become great engineers like I uh, because they mentor other people so in order for you to get into this industry you just ask for help and people would help you especially if they see you deliver like you're reliable like you just you come when you need help and after that they see you grow because it's very important for a lot of the people in the industry mm -hmm. and also i was just going to add a note about starting early and starting late like one of the, my best teammates right now uh he started he, he i mean he officially didn't call himself a programmer until he was 30 he started at 28 and he's one of my great best developers right now and we are promoting him to an engineering manager right now. Uh, so there isn't any age you can start. It's ability to learn. And starting early sometimes can also be a problem because I learned a lot of things the bad way and a lot of our industry changes and it has these soft restarts over and over again. And, and you're going to see that, that a lot of people have done the things for the last 10 years in a certain way and you have to change and this gives opportunity for newer talent to rise to the challenge. And that's amazing, in my opinion. Mm. So he started at the age of 28? Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's uh, relatively late, yeah, for anyone who wants to switch to the job. Because I, I do have a friend. She actually studied law. Mm -hmm. And she's really keen on programming. And she also realized that she is good at that. And she has never been good in math. Would you say that being good in math is uh, some kind of, you know, um, sign that uh, you would be good in programming? Uh, not at all. Okay. Not at all. Like, you will be good at programming if you are good at thinking. Like, if you have a way, a clear way to structure your your thoughts, you will be good at programming. Like, math, yeah, there is some traits that make you good at math because math is also logic. Mm -hmm. Like, programming, but programming is more around solving problems. And especially when you say programming, that's a very big area. You can go very hardcore, like for example, developing cryptography where you need math totally. <laughs> but 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 if you're, for example, working on a client side software, a lot of the work is actually gathering requirements for people. Like your friend, uh, if she's good at law, she's actually good good of understanding how system works, like how rules of a system work. That is a great quality for a programmer, especially when we develop systems which mimic the real world. Like if you write a software for something which is an existing thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what gave you so much confidence in the beginning, you know, to just apply for a job, to not to um, accept uh, no and, you know, yeah, their excuses? Uh, uh, back in the day, that wasn't the confidence. That was that I was naive and, and young. <laughs> I was just, okay, I have no idea what I was doing. And I was just doing it. And I didn't think about very long-term consequences of those jobs. I was like, okay, I mean, what bad can happen? Like, I, I'm bored at school. <laughs> that sounds like something fun. And I got into it. And it wasn't exactly like I, I didn't think about it confidence or not. And now, now I don't, right now, for example, I don't consider myself a very confident person. It's more like I know myself very well. Every time I feel unconfident about something. I just analyze that because we not being confident in things has its purpose. Like, for example, I'm learning to drive now very late. I know. Uh, and you haven't even really started, so don't worry. Yeah, it's not there. <laughs> so a lot of times when I feel unconfident, should I pass by this person in this speed? This is 
okay, I'm not confident because my skill is not good and this is dangerous, so I should be careful and maybe I should not do it. But other situation is, I'm not confident enough to tell my, some of my teammates it's not performing very well, which is hard. And am I not confident because I'm not right? Or I'm not confident because I cannot deliver this in a good way to, to this person? Or I'm not confident because I just want this person to like me? And when I analyze this, this thing, why, why I'm not confident, then I can decide, okay, confidence, that's it, that, that makes me secure. I won't crash with the car. I will be great. I will arrive on time. Oh, near the time, but alive, or, okay, now I have to be brave and tell this person they're not performing in, in, and we should find a way for them to make them perform. So that's the, the way I'm thinking about confidence nowadays. You have been part of the engineering team of Product Hunt, a product hunt from a very early stage. Actually, you've been one of the first employees. If yeah. you're telling me that, you know, you didn't think about confidence back then, I guess you would be lying because, I mean, how do you become part of a product team where we have so, and even then, back, back then in time, we were having so little product knowledge here in our region. Yeah, I mean, I was always interested in product. Like for me, I think the biggest thing we need to develop as region right now is product thinking. So even before joining Product Hunt, I was working in Austria, uh, the startup where I work, uh, moved to London, then I was working in Germany. So I saw a lot of product thinking. And for me, to be honest, one of the reasons I joined Product Hunt was because it had the product in the name. I mean, not, not because of that. I, and I was worked before with some of the team members, but I spoke with Ryan, who was the founder. And to this day, I think he's one of the best product people I have ever worked with. Uh, he has, I think, the best product sense, especially when driving a community product. So for me, uh, working at Product Hunt, or originally I thought I would just stay one year. <laughs> Uh, just to learn my skills, move between jobs, build the great software there, finish my job there, learn how to build the product, see the beat of the product. What was of your first job in the beginning uh, at Product Hunt? Uh, so, at product, so at Product Hunt, we, the way we work is we don't have responsibility for, like we don't say you are responsible for this area. It's like you take whatever you want. Like my first... The first thing I did was just fix a CSS book of a model window. And after that, I rewrote the whole front end. And then the next thing was I, I had to take over the mobile project because it was made by a fan of the company, just made the mobile app and just gave it to us. And I had to create the team around that. So the way in Product Hunt always happens is you take what is given to you. And this is a very valuable skill I learned and I'm trying to give to my teammates is that uh, I don't give, I don't put them in positions. I don't say you are responsible for X, Y, and Z. You can move, you can make a decision. Everything is yours. Like the whole system is open in, in this sense. So it's, so the culture we had back then, and I hope we have now is also like that. It's like, if I have an idea how to improve the system, what to work on, I, I have a say in that. This was uh, one of the core principles back then. And this was very surprising from the place I went, went before when I was working in Germany, where everything was like, you work here, you work here, you work here. <laughs> True, true. So if we, you know, kind of, you know, compare growing out of a great software engineer to being a good product person, what would you say is the, the most important scheme for being a great product person or a product manager? Yeah, so if, if, if you come from the software engineer and you want to move more to a product person, the first thing you have to stop doing is 
when thinking about implementation details early on. And this also helps software engineers as well. Uh, because what one problem we start having as software engineers is we, we start thinking very concretely. Like I still have this when we discuss the feature, I'm already thinking, okay, how should I implement that? How, <laughs> how is the database structured? Can we scale that? And a lot of the times when uh, you have to think about product, you have to think first about why we need that. Like what's the use case? Is just cool thing to do? Is it fun? Or is it make sense for the customer? And then there is like, again, different ways to think about product, but in the end of the day, uh, the good product people don't consider like we build that and that's it. Like we, you, like a lot of software engineering practices in the world come from the consultant times where like things like Scrum come from like, we just hire this external agency, we have the stakeholders, we have this real world system and we have to put it in software and everything is requirements and the requirements has to be implemented point for point. The moment when you want to move to a product is when you start defining your own requirements, you not only find the holes in the requirements, so this is something software engineers are really good at, finding, okay, this actually doesn't make sense in the requirements, but the thing about it is to consider the requirements more like an experiment. This is something we want to try if it's going to work, because everything in product is just guesswork. Like in the end of the day, we are just guessing, is this going to work? We have hypotheses, we have a ways to verify it, but it's most of the time it's just guesswork. Even if the client says, uh, or the customer or what, whoever is, I want that, they most probably come with you with a problem mm -hmm. and they, they have a problem to solve, but they give you the solution because it's easier for people to define the solution to the problem. So that's, I think, a lot of the, the, the things that engineers have to start doing is think, stop thinking about implementation and start thinking about what's the problem the things is going to solve. And the third thing is, it's an experiment. It's fine to be removed. It's fine not to work. The, it's not fine not to understand why this happened, like mm -hmm. why this feature didn't work. Mm -hmm. And how do you deal then with failure as a product person or even as a software engineer I, I mean i can only imagine that a lot of you know your colleagues might have a problem with not being right especially when they're doing yeah. hypothesis yeah this is this is something especially with logical people they always think their logic is the same with especially when dealing with people and feelings <laughs> so the thing about it is so i have a nice framework i work at the at um for my team especially is so everything is an experiment on the feature side. But in order for us to build a feature, we have to build the infrastructure, the technical infrastructure that needs to power this feature. And okay, if this feature doesn't work out, okay, we take our learnings, too bad. Uh, I, a lot of the features I worked on don't, didn't work out, but the infrastructure is the thing that would stay because the infrastructure builds you this world of the software. Like for example, you build a feature and like as a good example is a lot of like like Slack, for example. They started as game company and they build the chat client and the chat client then become like the software company. And this is the second time this happened to this founder. It's, it was the same with Flickr. They started a game company and extracted Flickr out of it, sell it to Yakut, starts another game company, then a chat app. And the thing about we as engineers is you can build infrastructure to power the features you have like the things that power that thing. Like for example, if you build a feature, you have to build infrastructure to measure if this feature is used by users. 
if the feature is gone, you would have other features that need to be measured. So this infrastructure should stay. So in the end, you're fitting the core system of the application to be more powerful. So the next feature is actually cheaper to build. So instead of building the feature for, like you build one feature for one week, the next feature, which is similar, should be two days because you already have the infrastructure. So in order for the infrastructure to be sustainable in time, it needs to be uh, adaptable to Ex different types of features and to require requirements. Exactly, of, okay. exactly. And, and this is the thing which stays from removed features. And this, this gives the engineer, especially my team, pride. Because a lot of them is like, okay, I built this awesome infrastructure. It stays and it powers another feature. <laughs> and a lot of times we have situations when one of my engineers says, oh man, that's so great, this, 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 utility function I used from another feature. That's amazing. Thank you, whatever, who made that feature. And in this way, I kind of sustain this, okay, we remove the feature and we all say, yeah, it's an experiment failure, it's fine, but I still worked on that very hard for two months. Why did I remove it? And right now it's taking infrastructure. And right now with Product Hunt, we do it for one of our products. Like the product was not very successful, but we are taking all the guts out of it in a, more pleasant way than it means, but all the infrastructure, putting it into the main product, then it starts dr driving our numbers in a really great way because we had all those things built with such care and the people who build them are now feel the proud that, oh man, the thing you built, and I was even having a call with engineer who quit and found the company a month ago. Um, uh, and he was like, and I was talking to him, yeah, I just, we just started moving this and the, the, this piece of infrastructure you built, it was called Spider. We integrated it into the other system. It works great. And he was like, oh man, this was such a fun and we talking about it. And this is the thing that that's how you mitigate this. Okay. It's an experiment. I have to remove it. <laughs> okay. I actually kind of, you know, like the metaphor that software engineers and, and, and product managers might take their confidence from the infrastructure that they're building. In this sense, I would like to continue maybe the, the mm -hmm. metaphors and I would ask you, how do you become a leader of other engineers when you are a programmer, especially as you define yourself as a socially awkward person? I mean, leadership is actually pretty much connected to communicating with people. And I would also say empathy. I'm not sure. How do you <laughs> manage that? I mean, it's different for everybody, but usually when you, how do you, uh, grow in a software organization like a leader internally is you just help people like who is the usually the way you see the new leaders is the people who first take the initiative and the second is if there is a problem who people cluster over like for example when I was out of the office who is the people the person who takes over me and I intentionally didn't appoint that. People just instinctively know, yeah, it's this person. And you start helping people. Like if you help people, that's the moment you, you create empathy with them back and forth, the way you mentor people. That's how you create stuff. And the third thing is you have to be reliable. Like you cannot become like an engineering leader in an organization if you don't ship your features on time or they don't work or you're work suffers. Even if you help the whole team, in the end of the day, you, you have to provide your, your basic functions. And if you're just as passionate about innovation as we are, hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere. I think many uh, organizations now share this kind of learning over time that uh, 
they pick like the best programmers and uh, then they appoint them um, leaders because this is the natural progress of a you know a, a person to develop in an organization to climb the ladder. So you are really good at something and then you climb up and then you become a leader. But in its essence, we're talking about totally different oh, yeah. job descriptions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I have this problem right now with my team, for example, a uh, couple of my senior people have the potential to become great managers, but being a manager and being a great software engineer are two separate jobs. Mm. And yeah, there is common qualities, knowing technology and all of that, but there are two different jobs. And this is right now something I'm focusing like two weeks ago, I was making my plan for the quarter. And the thing about it is I don't want to say if you if you want to grow in your career, you have to go to management. Uh, right now, this is a very big trend in a lot of companies is they have individual software engineer roles that span on a se separate ladder from the management roles. And sometimes a lot of engineers like pay, get paid a lot more than their managers or even sometimes the directors. And because those are engineers who have very deep knowledge in particular area. Like right now there is this trend of calling them principal engineers in companies. This is a very big trend which is happening. And right now I'm designing my because this year we plan, we plan to grow the company a lot and I'm thinking a lot around our ladder of the teams, the different level of the people. And I don't want to force people to go to positions that they don't want to. Like with one of my teammates, uh, we experimented for a quarter if he was going to be happy of being a manager. And he, did, he wasn't happy. He was doing a very decent job of that, but he wasn't happy with this. And... That was great. Okay, you are now our first new level engineer on that new <laughs> title. And that's great because I have a great software engineer who creates great software, great knows how to talk with stakeholders, know a lot. Also has this one quarter of management, which shows him a lot of empathy to their engineering manager. Like they understand <laughs> that this is job actually is hard. So it's, it's two separate jobs. And I think more companies need to do that because what happens is People take their best engineers, make them crappy managers, and nobody's happy. You lose the great engineer, your team quality drops, and then it drops again because this engineer cannot manage. Or even worse, they they, they don't want so to So the grow. way out is basically to define like two separate career ladders where you can be promoting and uh, you know developing your talent over time. But promotion is usually also about getting a higher salary. So in this sense, would you be okay um, having a programmer, a developer in your team who uh, gets a higher salary than you? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, I think uh, I have one of that uh, just because I'm in Bulgaria, he lives in a lot more expensive <laughs> country right now, but okay. I'm fine with that because they deliver. Like, if engineer who is below me delivers great results and deserves that salary, that means my job is more secure because I also deliver, my whole company delivers, the, the company grows, everybody mm -hmm. wins. It's a win-win situation. It's um, the same, it's a very different, it's, it's the same way. Would I feel that, for example, a designer or a UX researcher or a data scientist makes more than me or an accountant or a salesperson? Like those are like, again, different jobs. So for me, that's fine. I, for me, it's more around the impact. Like people should be happy at, at the place they want and they shouldn't be forced to just move to another job because would I be more happy if I have a crappy manager who makes more than me? 
or an engineer that makes more than me. <laughs> and what do you think about these discussions that we have been having a lot in the public sphere about um, programmers, especially in Bulgaria? I, I guess it's similar also in the other countries in, in Southeast Europe, getting less paid than their colleagues somewhere in London or in New York or San Francisco. What is your yeah, five cents on that? I mean... It's a very complex problem because for me, that's actually a very great unfair advantage we have over those people, to be honest, that we make. Because if we think on absolute numbers, yeah, I make less than people person living in London. That's great. But my life standard is 4x better than theirs. Like um, we used to have a colleague in San Francisco when I started, he made 2x than me. And he was living with roommates because he couldn't afford a rent. And I was having this nice apartment, all that great lifestyle. And the thing about it is we have to understand that. Also, when people think, okay, we make more, they should look at taxes. Like Bulgaria tax system right now is awesome compared to the one in the US. Like this person was taking two eggs than me, but he was actually taking just a bit more than me in absolute numbers mm. because all the taxes they had to pay, all the, all the healthcare system they had to provide half with the company, half with them. And this is a lot of things that people don't consider when they think an absolute number because they just look absolute numbers. They should look, look the things in context. Uh, what's the lifestyle? Like uh, right now I have people in India, yeah, we pay them a bit less, less, but they live a lot better than their whole friends, peers, and they have a, a lot better lifestyle than me mm. right now. And I think that's fair. I think this will become more and more an aspect that uh, we will be paying attention to, especially now uh, in the post-pandemic world, where remote working has become like like a, like the new normal. And I think that's a well-known fact that Product Hunt is a remote organization from the day one, right? Yeah, exactly. I think even the two co-founders they didn't know each other for months, like personally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So when Ryan founded the company, he was alone in a coffee shop. He asked a friend to just make a website. And his friend went to do other website, other things. And the the previous head of engineering, Andreas, just make a scraper and put a Chrome extension of the website. And they started talking. Back then, Ryan was in San Francisco. Andreas, I think, was, was having vacation in Argentina or something. <laughs> and he's Austrian. Uh, really awesome guy. <clears throat> so uh, they didn't meet with each other. And that was the goal. Just build this remote co company because, I mean, why have an office for a company like ours? Yeah, and this remained like a culture over time. So I guess mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to remote work or the new distributed way of building teams, I can ask you anything. Uh, so <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like the only thing I'm really bad at is I haven't been in an office environment for like eight years. And even before Product Hunt, I was in office for like two years. And before that, I was like six years remote when I was at school at university. So I don't have much experience with office work, but I know everything about remote. <laughs> so <clears throat> in any case, uh, you have much more experience than most of us who have been part of this worldwide experiment of uh, remote work that we've been running during the pandemics. And in your observation, at least you know, like in the the context that you're working, what is, manage, uh, what is it that managers still don't understand about work, uh, remote work, according to you, that they're you know, repeating as a yeah. mistake again and again? Yeah, so the first thing they're repeating is they think things would come back to the way they were. <laughs> I think that's the <laughs> biggest mistake they're making. Stuff is not going back. 
okay. it would move to like another thing. But I think the, the other mistakes they do is a lot of the old stout manager, when everybody's in the office, the way you measure the, the productivity of your team was through input. Who is in the office? Who is coming? Who is the loudest person in the room? Who is the person who I just see bagging on the keyboard? And who is the person who is like doing stuff? And because of those input signs, they're actually missing a lot of the bigger picture. The way to, to see productivity in remote team is to measure the output of the people. And in the remote environment, it's because you don't have this noise of like, okay, I see this person is in the office. They are clicking and they're coding all day. They, should, they must be producing. How can not, they are not giving results? And I'm not seeing that. I actually don't know my teammates. Are they working one hour, two hours, or 20 hours? I mean, hopefully nobody works 20 hours. I don't want mm. that. But I just see the results. And, I can, and, and this gives me a bit more objectivity. And this also forces me as a manager, and this is, again, a very hard skill. I'm still learning that, is giving clear success metrics of people. Like, do you know you're doing your job well? Like, if you're in an office environment, yeah, I mean, you're doing well or because you are in the office. In the remote, I have to set up you a bit more good criteria. I must, I must give a pace for the whole company. I must be able to measure the output. So I think this is the biggest difference. A lot of the old style management was focused on the input. Let's have a meeting. Let's see, let's have people in the room, all that. And the remote companies and the ones that are the good showcases of that culture have a lot more output-driven approach where they're focusing a lot on the output. Uh, the other thing... But for that, you need also a system to measure output, which isn't that easy to develop, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, that's the, that, that's the <laughs> second thing. So that's the second thing. The second thing for a remote company is... the. Remote, in order to get a small remote company off the ground, you need to 10x the process of the same company on the on where you are small. Like if I have a 10 people company, I need 10x the process if I'm remote compared to being an office. But when I have 1,000 people company, I have 10x less process than a 10,000 company which is co-located. Okay. Because the way is remote companies need to set the process early on to clear a lot of a lot of things that gets implicit in an office. I like my co-founder would love you saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine, and that that's the thing about it. Like in in motivation, you need to have documentation. You need to have clear ways. Um, you need, to, for example, something I'm very focused on is called single player mode, where I remove blockers from my team so they don't need to have meetings and they can do their works on their own. Andreas made this concept uh, very early on. I had extended, I call it collaborative single player mode. And the idea is I hire engineers for full stack. They can take a feature from idea to backend to frontend to everything. So they can deliver everything on their own. And I provide them all the support needed. That's where the collaborative parts come. Like they have the code reviews, they have small checkpoint systems, they have the design systems. So every, everybody is able to execute a piece of the system alone without needing too much to communicate with everybody else because for example if a front end has to wait for the back end we they have to sync up and they might be in different time zones mm -hmm. As, and a call is very destructive for everybody if they need to make a small product decision and the product manager is slipping okay just make the decision you have to know the trade-offs about the decisions anyway so the idea of the single player is you are able to execute features from start to finish you are the owner you have the ownership and 
we give you all the support and you, the team is there so everything doesn't become a chaos and not people just bump into each other. Okay, I mean, from what I listen to and what I, what I hear from you, the way that you're building the organization, everyone is kind of, you know, very empowered to be autonomous, to do mm -hmm. their own thing. Uh, what about the connection between the teammates, uh, the relationship between the teammates? Is that, for instance, important to you? Uh, I mean, it's important. We had a lot of structure in place before COVID. Right now, we are reinventing the wheel there. Like usually the way the things we're doing was twice a year or three times a year, we gather the whole team, the people work with each other. We do a lot of uh, pairing sessions between the teammates. P people collaborate, but collaborate more with written form. So it's important for me to have that. It's not the same as being in the office. That's I think the, the thing that the office have is just creating those interpersonal relationships but still you can create those. Even if you just see each other like two or three times a year, that's actually sometimes a bit more special event. Like uh, the colleague I have a call with uh, a month ago who quit a year ago uh, because he wanted to become a founder. I mean, I have seen this person in my, in my, like we worked for two years. I saw him in person three times and we are good friends <laughs> and okay. we still keep with each other. So we, you can create stuff with those people, but you have to be more proactive about it mm. yeah i like the idea uh, i like that what you're stressing on that you have to be proactive which is something that uh, i think especially in in our geographical area we don't really are aware that relationships they do require proactive approaches and uh, you know organizing stuff planning stuff not cancelling last minute oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> uh, i mean i spent a lot of time in in austria uh, so <laughs> I have a different mindset about uh, building relationships and meeting people, relating to people. And sometimes I was a bit frustrated of uh, how, especially Bulgarians are just going with the flow uh, when it comes to friendships and... Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is again the thing with remote and not remote, explicit versus implicit. Okay. How you make friendships in a company, it's implicit, just people sit there and they do all that stuff. But when you are remote, you have to be explicit, you have to think about those things. Yeah. and you have to learn the norms because yeah Bulgarians are we are not very good at that I also like <laughs> was living in Austria and yeah things are a lot I, I like them a lot more like people come on time which is great which is great right okay there is another aspect uh, that uh, you know is related to working from anywhere or working from home and this is productivity and I think a lot of managers are kind of you know focusing on the input side because they have an issue trusting their employees that they're going to be productive even if they're not in the office it's like easier to believe that someone is productive when you see them clicking <laughs> and typing um in this sense how do you how did you learn to trust about productivity this is the first question and after eight years now how many years you've been working from not in the office i mean collectively maybe like 10 15 10 yeah. 10 12 years would you share also your biggest learnings about how to be productive in a non-office environment? Yeah, uh, yeah. so the first thing in order to be productive in a non-office environment, you, do, you have to treat it as an office environment in terms of you have to be serious about it. Okay. You don't have to say, yeah, I mean, I'll just watch TV. You have to make the place you want to work your own. You have to create a dedicated area to work and you have to make it comfortable. 
because if you are not comfortable, like in the offices, at least in, in, in Bulgaria, you get great chairs, great good stuff. You have to make the place you the you work your own. So you are very productive in that place. And you the other thing is you have to have good working hours. Uh, even if you if I don't count the hours of my employees, everybody who is productive, I think, works the hours they want to, but they're fixed hours. Because people are good at like having those moments. Because if you just pull up, okay, I'll just work it when I have time and, and time never comes. You have to make time for working uh, remote. Okay, so do you put it somehow in the calendar? Like I'm going to work from tomorrow because uh, whatever, this is my schedule. I'm going to work from nine till 11 and then I'm going to go to the dentist or whatever and then I'm going to work. Do you do it uh, like that? Mine or? is a bit more weird about that. So I have three working pieces like before going to training in the morning. I have one in the afternoon and I have the third which is like only if there is like an emergency area of time. I'm, I haven't blocked them in my calendar. I try mm -hmm. to keep my calendar very clean. My I try not to have many meetings. I only have the things like, okay, coming to here for this interview, coming to the dentist. Mm. But apart from that, the way I, I, I am thinking about work is every day I have like two, three, four goals I want to achieve at work. And when I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> That's it. Like if I have something more urgent, like for the week, I may take something else. But there is times where I have stayed working till 10 because I couldn't finish my other things and they were important. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm back in that, that uh, at three in the afternoon, I'm done with all my tasks so I can just do something else. I try to give those rewards to me, but I have goals. Okay, this today, that's the thing I want to execute. So this is the first reflection that you do when you start the, the day or do you do that before that where you just write down the goals that you want to achieve? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 usually it's when I go to bed, it's like, okay, what should I do tomorrow? Like I have goals for them. I, I have like a lot of goals. I have a goals for the week. This week, this is the things I want to achieve. Okay. This is the things I want to achieve. And, and I split it for the days. Like th this, this week, for example, I want to have this recording of this podcast. So mm. in order to do that, I have to prepare and I have to come on time. So okay. those are two minor goals for the, the day. So I split, I have a goals for a week and I also have goals for like a month and a quarter for on the company side as mm. well. I think uh, putting your uh, day into actionable goals and also realistic goals, this is the one thing that I'm really bad at, especially lately, um, that I'm you know, putting stuff in my to-do or in my task list, which are kind of you know, impossible to be completed during the day. So I end up with this frustration of, well, I haven't done my task list and I'm not going to probably do it tomorrow as well because you know it, you know the tasks are kind of piling up how do you deal with that how do you deal with being realistic about your goals that you want to complete or achieve during the day mm -hmm. so, or the week yeah so I are you so the thing about it is uh, the first thing is I try to say okay if it's a do it doesn't mean it has to be done I prioritize tasks like I say those are the top three things and I have to achieve those. Like, I mean, if I can't, I can't. Okay, that's fine. But I also tune for myself. I noticed that, okay, four, four days in a row, I cannot finish more of my tasks. The other thing is the other tasks are not so important. A lot of the tasks we have in our lists are stuff that's, okay, that's not very important. And okay, a lot of times I just remove it. Like if I notice that something I'm just postponing for like a month and it's totally not important, I just 
remove it. And this is again on the personal level, this is also on the company level, or I delegate it to somebody if it's a work thing. <laughs> I learned this trick as well. I mean, if I manage to postpone something for a month, then it's obviously not important. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> like, like we had this case with one service, we had to update the service and we are postponing it for six months and the company actually bankrupted and we have to just remove that. So. <laughs> We, we spend up a lot of work. So if it's, if it's important, it, it would be important. Okay. But don't you ever get into these, you know, internet rabbit holes or YouTube rabbit holes where you just, you don't, you never stop watching or uh, Netflix binge watching. I mean, you're at home. Why aren't you seduced sometimes to just switch uh, uh, on the series? Uh, the thing about it is I cancel Netflix and I just put it like, I, I just collect <laughs> like five series I want to watch and I just subscribe and pay, and pay it. But the thing I do usually is uh, I'm, I'm, I put stuff into lists for later. Like, for example, when I see something fun on YouTube, I'm like, okay, add it to my watch later list. Add it to my watch later list. If I see some of the watch I actually have a time dedicated every Saturday in the morning. I have an hour to check these lists. And a lot of the stuff is like, the nice thing about it is I see the list. For example, the YouTube one is like, oh, that's not interesting for me anymore. That's not interesting. That's not interesting. Okay. Because during the week, I have piled up with like, 20, 40 interesting things, and I'm just taking the most interesting right now, the most interesting, and I'm just cleaning it up. Okay. Just postponing a lot of the stuff because I have found out that the problem is you get to the rabbit hole and every second or third thing you see, actually it's not so gratifying, but you're used to the gratification, you just dig, dig, dig downer. While if you just postpone it, even with a day, you see, and I don't care. I actually don't care about Wimbledon statistics from five years ago. That that's not very interesting to me anymore, and stuff like that. So that's the thing. I'm the way I'm like putting, just postponing it, postponing it, it and making it, you know, maybe uh, yeah. less uh, seducing. Exactly. Okay. And and the other thing is I combine it with cleaning at home. Like, all right, there is this series I have to watch. This is a great time to get some dust out, clean up some stuff, take some laundry and stuff around that. So I just combine a lot of those things. So it's not like wasted time watching like how an elevator works. Okay. Okay. That's a good hygiene tip. So <laughs> um, consuming content while, you know, cleaning up. What about the hygiene of your mind? Do you have some kind of hack? How do you do that? Uh, for me, it's like sometimes just collection of Netflix uh, things to watch and just take them when I'm tired. And the other mm -hmm. thing is I really like to walk and just have like podcast, audiobook or just, or just nothing okay. and just walking. Like I have found out that for me, uh, the best way when I feel tired is to start moving. <laughs> just when my body starts moving, I start feeling a lot more energized. Like a lot of times I'm, oh man, I don't have anything. I don't want to do anything. So bored. Okay, let's start doing something. Okay, let's just take the dishes, uh, take the trash. And five minutes later, I'm, I'm full of ideas because I'm so bored <laughs> and I want to do stuff. Oh, that's, that's actually uh, also very, very difficult to manage in the home office situation, or at least it was difficult to manage for me, you know, the movement, because at some point, the less I move, the less I want to move. So you're yes. acting totally against your instincts. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, like the lockdown was terrible time for me yeah. because I was like closed in an apartment and I couldn't move. And, yeah. 
and I, I had to do like walking in circles just in order to, to generate some ideas to do something. Otherwise, you are just on the couch. And when you're on the couch, especially if you have a nice couch, it's very hard to get out. <laughs> it is. But I started using the, the stairs. That was my trick at some point. I was just climbing the stairs up and down, up oh, and that, down. That's a great, yeah. that, that's a nice idea. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, I mean, the way that you describe your everyday life makes me think that you're a very organized person. So you have probably all, you know, this... Uh, tools for productivity where you make your own list and then you put your stuff and I also know for a fact that you're uh, very passionate in journaling yeah. how did you develop this was it a talent that you were born with or was it something that you developed out of necessity uh, I don't think I was born with it I remember my early years uh, that I was very chaotic at school but when I started working very young I had to when, especially when I get to university I had to do I had to not fall out of university I had to work full time and back then I was like the senior programmer at 18 which was not a good idea for my boss but it works out and I had to have a social life and meet people and like this was the best time of my life socially wise and you have to start organizing because otherwise you would fail at everything because it won't be you succeed at one thing and everything breaks. You either succeed at all of those three things or I fail at everything. At least that was my mindset. Okay. So. It was just okay. I would just had to be organized. And that's how I develop a lot of those habits. And a lot of my systems are not that I'm so organized. The core of my organization system is I don't put stuff in my brain. I just put it somewhere else for safekeeping because my brain is not for storing ideas. It's for making them. Like I have to come here for this interview. I have an alert two hours earlier that I would have to come here. Uh, when I was, uh, I was at the seaside, I went to my room and I get out my keys from my home and I put them in my back. But those keys opened the garage for, for my home and mm -hmm. I cannot go back without them. And if my back is in the trunk of the, of the car, I have to stop the car and do a lot of that. So I write a reminder on the day I'm going to leave, just a reminder, get the keys and put it in your pocket. So if you have to think about organizing your everyday life and managing things, it would just take so much capacity of your yeah. brain that uh, you could actually use for developing ideas and learning exactly. about, uh, and also solutions. Exactly. Okay. So I'm just putting stuff somewhere and okay. adding automation to alert me about stuff. Okay. And before we finish the conversation, uh, let's do something like a small blitz session, which we'll mm -hmm. be using probably for the intro to the episode. I, I think it's always kind of, you know, funny mm -hmm. to have these short uh, answers and questions. And I'm going to start with um, finishing the sentence. Okay. I became a software engineer because... This was the first thing I was good at. <laughs> That's actually very honest. I believe my biggest talent is... I'm reliable. Oh, okay. I love that. I didn't expect that actually from you. <laughs> I'm, uh, why, why? I'm very reliable. Come on. <laughs> <clears throat> because you seem to me like a very curious person who is probably more like this Da Vinci people who are, you know, gathering... Um, all sorts of responsibility. No. Um, I mean, this is, yeah. uh, maybe this is just a reflection of myself. This is where I break at my reliability <laughs> that um, I get curious <laughs> and interested in so many aspects that I don't manage my time. Yeah, 
Yeah, so for me, it actually I have two motus and I'm constantly picking you to my team and those two motus are, the first is I always deliver, like whatever I promised, it would happen. And the second two is I'm always glad to help. So those are the two things which describe me best on my, mm. and I constantly tell them to people so they can tell me if I'm lying. <laughs> and what are the qualities that you value most with uh, in those that you work with? Uh, so... For me, is again, real ability. Those people is somebody who I can trust, they can deliver, or if they cannot, they can tell me there is a problem and we can solve that. So reliability is like a motto in Yeah, it's a very, life. yeah. It's, it's something that you're sensitive, um, uh, maybe also about. In five year times, I will be. Healthy and happy. Oh, nice. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. And before we finish, <clears throat> I would like to ask you a question, which I ask usually to all my guests, um, because I believe that it kind of, you know, reflects the mindset that uh, we try to nurture here mm -hmm. with this podcast. And um, this question goes like, what do you want to be remembered for? I don't know, to be honest. I, I, I haven't thought much about being remembered. I, I think I have a long life here. So hopefully I would answer this question in 40, 60 years. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, talk again. I yeah. will be curious about your answer. Yeah. <clears throat> Radu, thank you for being here with us. Uh, it's been a pleasure to, you know, let me look a bit deeper into the mind of a product person because I could not imagine a more product person than you um it's been a real pleasure having you here thank you for taking my invitation thank you for having me it was really fun the the, the questions were really great make me think a lot <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> in the next episode of the recursive podcast irina talks to the vice president original community strategy of vmware diana stefanova what's important is to believe in yourself I've learned to believe in myself early in my career because I was able to demonstrate results. Mm -hmm. So once you start demonstrating results, you kind of say, okay, if I can do this, I can do more. And just give yourself a chance to achieve more and more. Uh, stretch yourself, uh, set yourself ambitious goals. And I think uh, if it doesn't work out, if something goes wrong, that's okay. We learn from our mistakes. We go back, we revisit, and we continue. Um, for all of those girls that might have some doubts, as I said, number one, believe in yourself and try things. Even if things don't work out, you know, experiment, because through experimentation, people learn and they, they uh, develop and, and progress. So um, I remember one of the biggest uh, uh, mistakes I would say mistakes I've made early in, in my managerial job was to uh, kind of micromanage a little bit. And this is what I tell all of the managers, like just to become managers uh, in, in the organization. And I give them example with myself. One of the things that we tend to do when we just get promoted to a manager is to micromanage because we are usually subject matter experts in the area that we have been working on. We know everything that and how it needs to be done, right? Uh, we are not detached because we, we, we grow up, right? And um, often we just expect things to be done our way. Uh, so it takes a little bit of adjustment to let go. And if you are just as passionate about innovation as we are, hit subscribe for the Recursive Podcast on YouTube 
or your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere. <laughs>